Good morning, everyone. <laughs> so now this is the point in my talk where I'd usually tell you a little bit about myself, like a short biography. You know, the kind of thing, I'm Georgia, I'm married to Rob, we have three kids, etc. And the reason I would do this is because I want to give you an introduction to me, like a reference point, like a context to hang what I'm going to say today to you on. And interestingly for me, it's the part of the talk that I hate preparing the most, not because I don't have anything to tell you about myself, because I do, I promise. It's just that I always have this sort of mini identity crisis. Like, I really struggle to decide who actually am I? Like, what makes me me? Um, and, you know, what's relevant to include? What do you even need to know about me? It's like that awful question in an interview, you know, tell me a bit about yourself. Oh, my goodness, I hate it. Like, your mind just races over all the millions of things that make you who you are, and you try and only pull out, like, the positive ones, you know, how capable you are and employable and amazing. Because the truth is, I have many identities, many labels. I mean different things to different people. For my children, I'm mummy, you know, the person who organises everybody, provides the food and the comfort and the transport, the person to call on in the night when they're scared. And then for my husband, it's different, thankfully. You know, I'm a partner, a teammate, who doesn't call when he's scared. I'm someone to share the responsibility of life with, you know, to make those big decisions with. And the same is true for all of us. You know, we mean different things for different people. We have so many different identities and roles, like so many ways to define ourselves, and it can just get confusing and bewildering. I'm an actress, and years ago I was in a play, and I played multiple different characters in this play, which is like a personal hate of mine. No actor in the world actually wants to do that, by the way. I was basically playing every character other than the main part, which is what I actually wanted to be. Um, and as an actor, you have to sort of differentiate between these different characters so the audience don't know that it's you every time. And obviously, you have a different costume and a different voice, and you also have to have, like, a different physicality. And predictably, one night during this run, um, I ran on stage as character number three, who was, like, this wise and old teacher. And I kind of had done everything. I'd changed my costume, I had my voice in place, I was kind of stooped over in a classic old teacher pose, and then I caught sight of my shadow, and I realised that I'd left this gigantic, like, little girl's bow in my hair from the previous character, who was a little girl, and oh my word, I was just mortified, like, I just froze, and I just didn't say anything for, like, a minute, which is, like, an absolute lifetime when everybody's looking at you. And then I just ran off the stage, like, no explanation, <laughs> having given, like, the worst performance of a wise and old teacher ever in the history of theatre. And I think in our lives, when we do kind of juggle loads of different identities and roles, you know, it can be exhausting. It can just be difficult to manage if we don't hold on to the most important identity of all, which is who we are in Christ. It says in the Bible in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So when we ask Jesus into our hearts and invite him to be the Lord of our lives, we take off our old selves and identities, and we exchange it for Jesus and his identity. You know, identities can change. They can be taken away, you know, People lose jobs or, or lose partners, they lose children, they lose their dreams. 
our worldly identities are in this constant state of flux, depending on what kind of situation we find ourselves in at any given time. But once we've invited Jesus into our lives and we've made that exchange, our identity in him never changes. So knowing who God says we are and actually really believing it is fundamental in helping us to live the life that Jesus promised us in John 10.10, where he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Because at the end of the day, you know, when all those titles and roles and identities, all those ways that we define ourselves are stripped away, who really are we? You know, do we still feel valued and significant? So what does knowing who we are in Christ really mean and how do we get a handle on it? How can we live in a place of being absolutely sure of who God sees us as, you know, what he thinks of us, and then see the world and the roles that we have in this world through that lens of his perspective. I believe what we have to do is immerse ourselves in a few foundational truths which are woven all the way through the Bible, which are like the blueprint for knowing who we are in Christ, you know, knowing who we are through God's perspective once we become followers of Jesus. And this morning, I want to share with you what I believe to be five key things, five things that we need to know and remember to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, especially when we are at a time in our lives when we've got loads of different identities on the go, or at a time in our lives when our identities are changing, you know, and it's being shaken and things are being taken away and we feel like a little bit lost, like, who am I? So the first of these truths is that we are loved by God. Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus, who wrote lots of the books in the New Testament, he urges us in the book of Ephesians to grasp how wide, how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's so easy, isn't it, to hear these words, to have them prayed over you a million times and not really believe them, not really let them affect us. But these words need to be the very heartbeat of our lives. He loves you. He loves you, and it's so wide and so long and so high and so deep that it surpasses knowledge. His love for us is unconditional. You know, it's not based upon how kind you are or how frequently you fast, how passionately you pray, you know, how much you serve others. He doesn't love you more on your good days or less on your bad days. In fact, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's a pretty comprehensive list, right? That covers all of it. So we need to remind ourselves at all times that God loves us. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and although that meant I've inherited from those years of sitting through Sunday Mass every Sunday, that kind of like an awareness of the awesomeness of God, you know, how big he is, how majestic, how powerful, I was also scared to death of him. You know, he was something to be revered, afraid of, this frightening, omnipresent being that was always there watching for my inevitable transgressions. And I've had to 
over the years of being a Christian, just remind myself again and again and again, you know, Georgia, he is for you, not against you. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. There is now no condemnation, even for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has had to keep reminding me, and I've had to keep reminding myself. He's taught me so much about unconditional love just by having children of my own. Joshua, my eldest son, he was born six weeks prematurely. So when he was born, he was tiny. He was like this little, tiny, fragile thing. He was only four pounds. And I remember bringing him home after those first few weeks in hospital and taking him on his first bus ride to the shops. And at the time, we lived in London, so it was like a big, scary, double-decker red bus. Um, And I had this giant pram (laughs) that we'd inherited, and I sort of took it on the bus, parked it really badly, because it was my first time and I didn't know what I was doing. And this poor, unassuming man sort of came on the bus and bumped into the corner of the buggy. And, oh, my goodness, I could have killed that man with my bare hands there and then. Such was, like, my ferocious protectiveness, like, my fierce love for this tiny little being who, at the time, didn't even acknowledge my existence. You know, I didn't get anything back from Joshua at that time. He was barely awake in the daytime, so he didn't smile for weeks and weeks. You know, all he gave me then was this tiredness like none I had ever experienced and this horrible wobbly body that I didn't even recognize. It was hideous. Yet, I loved him. You know, I was prepared to defend him against some scary man I'd never met at all costs. I didn't think, you know, I'll love Joshua when he gives me a smile, when he calls me mummy for the first time, when he sleeps through the night. No, I just loved him with this unstoppable love that was completely independent of how he behaved. And we have to remind ourselves that that is how God loves us. It's unconditional. The second of these foundational truths is that we are chosen by God, that we are adopted into his family. Paul says in Romans 8, "'You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father.'" And again in Ephesians, he says, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So when we become followers of Jesus and invite him into our lives, we become a new person. We become this adopted member of God's family. And what's really interesting is that in first century Rome, which was when Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, the concept of adoption would have been really significant to the followers of Jesus that he was speaking to. In Rome at that time, the idea of adopting an orphan as we know it today, you know, a child who doesn't have any parents to look after anymore, just wasn't really the done thing. In fact, there were no laws at all to protect or ensure that just children in general were looked after properly. So if a child found themselves at this time orphaned and alone in the world, they really were that, like alone in the world with no hope and no prospects. So an orphan would have been the very worst position to be in, you know, a child with nothing, with no hope. In fact, the only recorded incidences of adoption in first century Rome were of these high-status, powerful families who would adopt individuals for political reasons. And they would usually choose men in their 20s and 30s in order to sort of create an alliance between two powerful families. Or they would do it to ensure that their inheritance and their political ideals went to someone that they deemed to be worthy of it, someone that they thought would contribute to it and take it on and become something that they wanted it to be. So many of the Roman emperors at this time adopted young men in this way to be their successors. 
And the adopting emperor often chose this young man for what this young man could contribute to him, not the other way around. So to be adopted at that time meant that you brought something to the table. You were worthy. You were sought after. It was a great honor. So when Paul tells us in Romans and Ephesians that we are adopted into God's family, it would have been really poignant for the listeners of the day. You know, they would have understood that an orphan of that time had no rights, no protection, no hope for the future, just as we, without God, are alone in the world and face the bleakness of a life lived without the one who created us. And yet he's saying, Paul, that though we can offer God nothing, though we bring nothing to the table, outrageously God is adopting us making us a member of his family, you know, bestowing what the people of the time just would have understood to be a great honor. You know, even if we don't bring anything to the table, even if we are unworthy and lowly, he has decided that we are someone of high value, somebody that's sought after, somebody that he wants in his family. The third of these truths that we need to remember is that we are known intimately by God. You, know, you can read in Psalm 139 just how intimately you are known by the God who created you. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. In my walk with Jesus, I have been constantly blown away by just how much he knows about me sometimes before I even know it myself. It's just the most reassuring yet incomprehensible thing. He knows us. He truly knows us. So we can be honest with him because we know, as it says a little bit earlier in Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. The first time I realized that God really knew me intimately, every detail, was within the first few weeks of becoming a Christian. I was dating Rob, who's now my husband, and at that time he was in the army and he'd just been sent to the Falklands on a six-month tour of duty. And the timing of this tour was just so completely rubbish for us. You know, I'd just become a Christian, which was freaking him out a little bit. And we were just trying to wrestle with what this meant for us as a couple. You know, what did our future hold? And it just felt like God was taking him away at the worst possible, most crucial time for us. You know, at that time, I would spend my weekends trying to save him. <laughs> and he would spend the weekend telling me that he would never become a Christian. Happy days! <laughs> so during the first few months of that tour, we soon realized as well that we wouldn't actually be able to communicate with each other very much because we just had really conflicting schedules. And that, for me, seemed to be just the death knell of our relationship. You know, I just sort of decided in my heart, this is, clearly this is God just taking him away, you know, making it easier for us to break up because he's never going to become a Christian, because it told me so. And then at around sort of three months into our separation, so halfway through this tour, I went to a prayer meeting, and a lady had this really direct word from God for me. Now, we've always been taught in the Vineyard Church to avoid words detailing the hatch, match, or dispatch, they call it. In other words, to steer clear of predictions about marriage or pregnancy or dying. But this lady clearly had never been to the Vineyard prayer ministry training because she just went straight up to me and she said words to this effect, you're thinking of letting somebody slip through your fingers, don't, he's a keeper. 
God is promising you boys, you're going to have boys. And I was like, <laughs> okay, walking away. <laughs> I went home and wrote it all down in my journal, because I was a good new Christian. And then three months went by, so fast forward to the end of Robert's tour, and he comes home and completely without my help, has decided he's going to become a Christian. Hooray! And then six years later, after getting married, we had the first of our three boys. And then every time I was pregnant with my boys, that lady's word would come back to me. And I would just marvel, you know, that God knew. He knew them before they were even conceived, before Robert and I had even decided that our future was going to be together. He had saw more than their unformed bodies. He knew them before they even existed. It was mind-blowing. He knows us, and he still chooses us. And the fourth of these foundational truths for knowing who we are in Christ is remembering that we are forgiven by God. No sin is too big to be forgiven. It says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So we know that when we mess up, which inevitably we do, and we realize we've done something wrong and we genuinely want to change and be forgiven, we can go to him can go to him and repent, which basically means turning away from the wrongdoing and turning towards God, and he will forgive us. You know, the Bible is full of people of God making huge mistakes and being forgiven, and it's so encouraging. I love the story of Peter, you know, the same Peter who walked on water with Jesus. You know, he lived with him, ate with him, saw him do countless miracles. He was the first of the disciples to declare that Jesus was the son of the living God. And then he denied him, not just once, but three times in those crucial hours after the crucifixion. You know, he was scared. He was human and he made a mistake, despite being told by Jesus the day before that he would do it and swearing that he never would. And I just love him for that. You know, it makes me feel so much better about all the massive failings I have, all the mistakes I've made, the things that I've walked into knowing that they're wrong but doing them anyway. And then we have that beautiful expression of forgiveness from Jesus after the resurrection when Peter finds him on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? You know, with each declaration of love, Peter must have been reminded of those three denials and felt like he was being given a second chance from Jesus, a second chance to be the person that Jesus had called him to be, the rock on whom he would build his church. The fifth truth we need to remind ourselves of is that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And then it then goes on to say in chapter 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. So crazily, we are seen by God to be in that same place as Jesus, seated at God's right hand, that place of authority and power and blessing. So this means for us living a life of hope for blessing, 
You know, believing that the authority and the power of Jesus is accessible for us through our adoption into God's family and our new position, which is now seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. And that's just mind-blowing. You know, it means that when we come into situations in our day-to-day life, we bring in with us the authority of Jesus. We bring in with us the power and the blessing of Jesus. I used to have really terrible nightmares when I was a child, and right up through my adulthood, I used to struggle to get through a single night without having one of these nightmares. I was quite an active sleeper, so I used to sleepwalk and sleep talk, which used to make the nightmares worse, because sometimes I would actually have my eyes open and be in my actual room, seeing in my actual room, but yet still seeing these images that my mind was creating before me. I used to continually, as a child, sneak into my parents' room, which must have done their heads in, um, just to escape the fear, you know, even before the nightmares. And when I got older and too embarrassed to go in their room, I used to just lay there awake in my bedroom, just too scared to even shut my eyes. And then when I became a Christian in my 20s, the nightmares sort of stepped up a gear. They happened more frequently, but also they involved something that I now know is called sleep paralysis, which is like this temporary inability to move or speak whilst you're having a nightmare. I would feel like I was literally pinned to my bed, like unable to move or speak or shout out just watching this nightmare play before my eyes. It was just awful. I was even too scared to pray about it. Like I just almost didn't want to draw any spiritual attention to it at all in case it made it worse somehow. I just didn't even want to talk about it. I just wanted to pretend that they weren't there. And then about five years ago, I was woken in the night by another one of these nightmares. And after sort of calming down and having a drink of water, I just decided, do you know what, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to pray. Rob was at work, so I was all by myself and knew that kind of being alone in my room meant that I was going to be too scared to go to sleep. So I began to pray, like really sheepishly at first, like, please God, make it go away really quietly. <laughs> And then I got a bit bolder, and I started to rebuke this and rebuke that and quote Bible verses. I didn't really know what I was doing or how to do it. But I just had this sudden sense of authority over this ridiculous situation, like an outrage, like, this is not on. I'm a child of God. I do not need to go through this anymore. I think I said something really eloquent (laughs) along the lines of, for goodness sakes, I'm in my 30s, I'm tired of this rubbish, I belong to Jesus, this is so not on anymore. And then after that night, I had maybe one or two other dreams, like those dreams, and I did the same again, you know, rebuked, and then did my Bible verses, and went back to sleep. And then they just stopped. Like, after 30 years of having nightmares, they just went away, and I have not had one since. You know, I had a shaky moment of tentatively believing that perhaps as a child of God and a co-heir with Christ, that maybe I had Jesus' authority and power over my own dreams, and it changed my sleep forever. I wish I'd done it years ago. So to sum up, we have five key truths that we can hang on to to remind us of who we are in Christ. If we want to fulfill our God-given potential, if we want to live out our original design, the life that God had in mind when he created us, we've got to get to grips with who we really are, who he says we are. We are loved by God. We are chosen and adopted by God. We are known intimately by God. 
We are forgiven by God. We are seated at his right hand with Jesus. And you know, for some of us this morning, these truths will be difficult to believe at first. We just need to remind ourselves of them daily and in all situations. We're living in an age where we're just bombarded by other people's lives and identities, aren't we? In a way that we never have been before. We're privy to vast numbers of people's comings and goings through social media, like, all day, sometimes countless times a day. And we need to protect our God-given identities, just as you would protect your actual identity from fraudulent activity, you know, by having passwords and security software on your laptop. So you also need to protect your God-given identity. You know, what I did in the days before my nightmares were gone, when I was too scared to pray... I would just write down all the verses in the Bible that had anything to do with not being afraid. There's quite a few. (laughs) And then I would stick them around my bed in my flat in London. And it's amazing, you know, that was years ago. It's amazing how even doing that small thing means that some of those verses are just ingrained in my brain. Like I couldn't forget them even if I tried. And they were there for me that night, you know, those few nights when I battled for peaceful sleep, they were there for me to pull out. It's so easy to let some of the roles that we take on become all we are, you know, the only thing that defines us. Especially when those roles span like big chunks of our lives, like being a parent or having a career. And then when life changes, as it inevitably does, you know, children move out, retirement begins, or partners die, It can just be so unsettling and frightening. You might be asking yourself this morning, who am I? Who am I now this season of my life is over? What's my purpose now? Or you might be waiting and hoping for a season in your life to begin and be in that horrible place of you're not one role and you're not another. Or you might be looking around yourself at other people and wishing that you could swap places with them because they have a role or identity that you would like. And if that's where you are this morning, I just want to encourage you. You know, whatever is happening in your life right now, whatever roles have come or gone or are not here yet, you are still the same in Christ. You are still loved by God. You are still chosen and adopted by him. You are still known intimately by him. You are still forgiven by him. You are still seated at God's right hand with Jesus in the heavenly realms. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet invited Jesus into your life and your heart, and you're thinking that you would like to have these truths to hold on to, you know, this identity that we've talked about, then we would love to pray with you.